Welcome to the Forward 40 Podcast, where we highlight the experiences of 40 women of color on the rise in the nonprofit and social enterprise sectors. This is an ode to our foremothers, a healing circle of our unique experiences, and a bridge of insight and wisdom across generations. hospital in Harlem because our Japanese ancestry doctor was not permitted to deliver babies who were of Japanese ancestry that were the patients of the the, the babies, the future babies that he would deliver of his patients who were of Japanese ancestry. And from 1930 to about 1955 or so, he was not allowed to deliver babies in New York, south of 125th Street, because the largely white hospitals, I guess, just didn't want him to deliver Japanese ancestry babies. And so it was not just World War II, but it was the issue of Asian, and and there were people who simply didn't want this Japanese ancestry doctor to deliver more Japanese ancestry babies. Mm -hmm. So I was born in a section of Manhattan called Harlem, and there were five hospitals that permitted him to deliver babies there. And um, those five hospitals are all gone now. They were small hospitals and... and So they weren't even consolidated by the the, the larger hospitals? No, they just were, they just have disappeared. Hmm. And so um, it's a, a, a very sad bit of our history that, um, says, you know, we are very diverse, our doctors are diverse, our community is diverse, but we really don't always pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. And so those five hospitals, Lutheran, Sydenham, Knickerbocker, Jewish Memorial, and Mother Cabrini, those five hospitals are all gone. And anybody of Japanese ancestry who was born in Manhattan, now there were hospitals in Queens and Brooklyn and other places that had maybe, I don't know how many. Mm -hmm. I do know some Japanese ancestry people who had non-Japanese doctors, whose mothers had non-Japanese doctors, delivered in Queens or wherever. Mm -hmm. But in Manhattan, any of us who were were born there, here, uh, were born in Harlem. And then your parents um, both attended Columbia? No. My mother was born in Japan, in Matsue, Japan, and her parents decided to move to the United States when she was an infant, and so they moved to Seattle, Washington, and 
lived on a little island called Vashon, just outside of Seattle. And she grew up there and then went to the University of Washington in Seattle. And when she got finished with the, her four years of college, she decided she wanted to do something with music. And so her advisors said, well, <clears throat> you don't sing, you don't play an instrument, you probably should consider teaching. And in New York City, they have a large college and with a teacher's college. And there's also a large music school, Juilliard. So you should think about going to New York and taking up teaching. So she came to New York and took up the idea of teaching music. And so she went to Juilliard. And my father's family was originally from Hiroshima, Japan. And they, my, my, my grandfather, my father's father was hired to be a sugarcane cutter on the island of Maui and in the little town of Hana. He was a sugarcane cutter and my father was born in Hana. And then um, he, Honolulu, because there was no real school in Hana on the, on the plantation. So he went to uh, school and um, went to a high school that was primarily um, Japanese, and so they called it Tokyo High. Wow. All, 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 the, all the kids <laughs> grew up there and, and went. And then when he finished high school, they um, suggested that he go to college on the mainland because he decided he didn't want to go back to Hana and, and be in, in agriculture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he went to the University of Oregon. And uh, when he got finished, he decided he wanted to go into business and not into back into agriculture. And so he they suggested that he go to Columbia because they had a business school and he decided to come. So my mother took the train and came cross country to New York and settled in the Columbia area. And my father did the same thing and went to International House, which is right up by Sakura Park. And he, um, there was a, a professor at Columbia who, for the holidays, the Christmas and New Year are both important holidays, and so he invited all the students from Japan and Hawaii and any students of, you know, in those days you didn't take hop a plane to go home for vacation. Mm. So he invited all the kids in the area to come to his home and he had Christmas and New Year's food, which was very special mm -hmm. holiday food. Mm -hmm. And that's where my mom and dad met and settled in the Columbia area. And that's how wow. I grew up in this wow. this community. So um, something I didn't share with you when I was excited to share with you now is that my middle name is actually Japanese. Oh, <laughs> what is your... Uh, what, what is your... You mentioned the park. Um, Sakura. That is my middle name. How did you get that middle name? Yes. Um, so as the story has been told to me, uh, my aunt was um, in the city working, and she passed a restaurant and noticed the name outside and said, you know what, that's what I'm going to suggest for my niece. That's the name I'm going to suggest for my niece. And then upon research, she um, found out that it meant cherry blossom. So that's, that's my little name. Just from her walking out, <laughs> perusing the, the city streets, 
and being drawn to the name. Well, there's a little park right up here mm -hmm. called Sakura Park. Mm -hmm. And then in the spring, every spring, there is a cherry, cherry blossom festival. Mm -hmm. One in Brooklyn that was... Um, the people in the garden club in that area were taught by George Rizawa, who is a florist here in Manhattan, and uh, they learned how to have a, make a cherry blossom festival. And then George was part of something called the Japanese American Association, mm -hmm. and he taught us how to have a cherry blossom festival, and every year we plant a tree in honor of somebody who has done something special in the community. And um, so there's a, now there is a new cherry blossom festival on Rikers Island. Um, people have, have started planting cherry trees there. And there's going to be a cherry tree planting in Queens one of the state senators is going to, um, no, I'm not, uh, state senator, state congress, state assemblyman, I'm, I'm not positive. Um, a, a lot of my memory is disappearing. But anyway. No, you, you definitely have your wits about yourself. <laughs> well, no, no, you, you'd be surprised. But, um, Anyway, there's there's a, a lot to celebrate mm -hmm. with your name. Yes. So so you you could be very busy in the spring going from one sakura festival to the next. You could be very busy and, oh and you could and I had the chance to enjoy uh, one at um, they were having celebration in, in Brooklyn the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. Yep. Yes, mm -hmm. indeed. Yep. And that was, that was my only one. I've wanted to make it to D.C. And then, of course, definitely have a goal well, to there's make it a, Japan. There's a very beautiful one in just outside of Newark, New Jersey. And that is a very special um, because that is on land that is uh, has little hills. And uh, it's called um, um, Branchbrook Park, and it uh, has little hills, so they have planted pine trees, and the cherry trees have been planted amongst the pine trees, so they stand out, and because it's an irregular terrain, mm -hmm. it's really very pretty. The Washington one is very rigid, very straight. Uh, uh, it's, it's very pretty, but the tidal basin is, is very straight, square, um, and the, the trees are, are planted in rows. And Brooklyn, the botanical garden in Brooklyn also has mm -hmm. very rigid, straight, mm -hmm. planted. The ones that we planted in Queens, in Flushing Meadow Park, um, they're irregularly planted. They're not in rigid lines. And so um, we have several, you have several choices of mm -hmm. places to look at for, for cherry trees. But I, I, I think the one in New Jersey is really quite interesting because it's, it's so irregularly okay. planted. Okay. I'm going to definitely add it to my list. But, but you, I'll, I'll have to let you know when we have our one in Branchbrook Park. Okay. Um, that's the one in, in Jersey. Then the one in, in Flushing Meadow Corona Park, I'll let you know when we do that. We have a bus that goes from oh. Manhattan to, um, goes from Manhattan to the park. provide a, a ride from Manhattan to Queens, and then from uh, at Queens, we also provide a, a, a picnic, a Japanese picnic lunch nice. with your bus ride. Very so nice. You'll have well, to, I'm looking forward to that. Looking so we'll have to, we'll have to um, have you 
come to that. It'll be very interesting to have you see what there's always some cultural uh, Japanese dance or some some um, some kind of kids doing some sort of judo or some mm -hmm. some kind of ex you know demonstration of, of and and also some singing there's usually the Japanese chorus group sings and there's always some, and then there's always the planting of a tree in honor of somebody who has done something very special and um, I, I don't we haven't discussed who we're going to plant the tree in honor of this year can it be in honor of you well, there already was one. <laughs> there was one. Thank you. There's not enough trees that can be planted in honor of you. No, no, there, there, there was one. <laughs> now, your journey, like, in um, just, like, advocacy, social justice, um, you not only advocated for the Japanese community, the Asian community at large, but communities of color. Um, what kind of propelled you into being a voice for? Well, you know, when I was growing up, um, we didn't know why at one point our mother would call our father and say, I'm taking the children to school. And, and my sister and I simply could not understand what was wrong with our mother that or our father that they didn't understand that we knew we were going to school and we knew our mother knew we were going to school and our father. Why did she tell my father every morning she was taking us to school or every day she was going to go to the grocery store or she was taking us to the park or she was, we, we could not understand why our mother just had to do that all the time. We, we thought that there was something very strange that, that what we didn't know was that our mother was not calling our father. And in, the, in those days, you simply did not question what your parents did. What they did, they did. And you never, you just simply accepted whatever they did. That was what they felt was their mm -hmm. duty. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that she was calling the FBI because my mother was born in Japan. She was considered an enemy alien because Japanese were not allowed to become naturalized citizens mm -hmm. until after World War II. Mm -hmm. So because of her being born in Japan, she was under house arrest and my mother had to get permission from the FBI to leave our house. She was never allowed to leave our house. So even to take you to school each day? Yeah. Every single day she had to get permission from the FBI. And she was not, we didn't know it, but she was not allowed to leave Manhattan. And um, my sister and I went to summer camp. Our next-door neighbors sent their children to summer camp, and they asked my parents if we wanted to go to summer camp, and my parents said they didn't think we could go. Mm -hmm. And our neighbors said, well, I'll call. They're, they're Quakers running the camp. Well, it turns out the Quakers were the one religion during World War II who were kind to the Japanese and helped Japanese college students, helped all kinds of projects. Mm -hmm. and, and when this neighbor called the Japanese, um, two girls were, were Americans, but uh, could they come to their camp? And the, these Quakers said, of course they can come to the camp. So we went to the camp. And on parents' visiting day, all the parents came to visit their kids. And 
our parents didn't show up. So my sister and I went into the woods and we cried. Our parents don't love us the way real American parents love their children. They didn't come. And we all, all day long, we, we stayed and cried in the woods. And then when it got dark, being New York City kids, we were scared. We came back into camp. We pretended we'd been somewhere with our parents. And, um, but we never asked our parents, why didn't you come? It was never anything that, that we did. We just didn't question your parents. So later, when my husband and I had children and, and we were sending them to summer camp, my mother was a widow by that time. And my mother, being a widow, um, was by herself. So, so we had her come and have dinner with us every single night. She always had dinner. I always fixed dinner, and my mother, unless my mother was going someplace, and then she did come for dinner. But, but I told her one weekend, we're going to visit our children at summer camp. We think it's important to visit children at summer camp. And my mother started to cry. And it was the first time I saw my mother cry. And she said, we would have come to visit you but the FBI wouldn't let me come and leave Manhattan and go to Pennsylvania. And I said, what are you talking about? And yeah, she, the first time so again. that's when she told me. And so I ran to the phone and I called my sister and I said, they did love us. They would have come, but the FBI wouldn't let mommy and daddy leave New York. And my sister said, what are you talking about? What are you babbling about? And I, then I explained to her about my telling my mother. Wow, wow. And that's when we found out about their, my, my mother not being allowed to leave Manhattan and my father didn't think it was nice to leave her. And so he didn't come to visit us at camp. So neither of them came to visit us at camp. And then what, like, it took you time for um, for you to come to the realization of kind of what was um, keeping your parents, you know, in, in bondage and, like, limiting them from uh, being full um, citizens in, in this country. What was kind of, like, the spark for you to advocate um, for, like, health justice and... Well. When, when that came up and our parents told us, mm -hmm. we then found out about our parents and our mother not being able to be a citizen. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, when the U.S. said that Japanese could become American. Mm -hmm. Our mother said she wanted to become a citizen. Mm. And so my sister and I, every night we, you know, grilled her on the states and on the presidents and this and that, all the things about the citizenship. Mm -hmm. And we, we, so when her hearing day came, my father and my sister and I went and we sat and, and we were watching and listening for when our mother was called. And when she was called, the judge said to her, Mrs. Tarada, aren't you ashamed of yourself? that you have two grown daughters and you're just getting around to becoming a citizen now. My mother looked at him and my mother was 4'10 and 3 quarters and my mother said, <laughs> young man, let me tell you something about your American history. And my sister and I, <laughs> oh no, 
all the nights of drilling her, all the practice. Oh, it's shot the hell. We, 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 and my father just shook his head. And this young judge realized that he was in trouble because she knew something he didn't know. So he said to her, Welcome to the United States, Mrs. Tarada. Welcome. And he put his hand out and shook her hand. And Mummy didn't have to answer a single question. So when he said, Welcome to the U.S., and he got her the papers, and she came, we couldn't believe it. I mean, it was really one of those things where you just didn't, didn't really, you know, know that this was something that could happen. And so, it was after that that our, our mother and father said, you two, meaning my sister and me, are really lucky that you didn't have to go to the camps. And then we learned about the camps in California. And most Americans did not know that over 120,000 people were put in concentration camps in California. And only, you know, people on the East Coast were put in Ellis Island and a few army camps. And, and then all the Japanese were sent to Japan. But my parents said, we should consider ourselves lucky and do something. We were lucky we had an education. We had an, and that's when our, my Smith education came into the forefront. And so it was a, one of those situations where both my sister and I did go into teaching and we both went into doing something that my sister helped uh, physically challenge kids. She, she taught phys ed, okay. and um, she developed a class for, for she taught at Swarthmore hmm. and, and at a little school in Pennsylvania called Linden Hall, and she taught kids, and she realized that especially young women who had some kind of disability very often weren't able to, to do anything because nobody helped them with their whatever disability it was. So she did that and I ended up teaching also. But both of us in our teaching found out that there were kids that didn't have always the same opportunity as, as kids, as, as white kids did. Um, my husband and I lived in Georgia during a time when, before the Supreme Court ruled that interracial marriages were okay. And so my husband and I, our, our marriage was illegal when we lived in Augusta, Georgia. And that was a pretty horrible, uh, I, I, it was a horrible experience living in Georgia in, in, in those days. Um, we had to live in special housing because anybody, any mixed marriage was illegal. And so, you know, after growing up in New York, even though New York um, has a, a lot of segregated mm -hmm. situations, you lived and you were, you know, you were, you were experienced seeing and, mm -hmm. and traveling in the subway or in the bus with people of color and other people. And, and New York had the UN, and so we, had, we lived with a lot of different people. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. living in Georgia, it, it was, you couldn't, couldn't live in the same way. So it was a, it was a very serious, um, 
one time we were walking along after dinner and we passed a couple and I said, oh, I bet they were from Hawaii and they're Japanese ancestry and she's pregnant. And my husband said, now in two seconds, how did you know all that? And I said, well, you Caucasians, you know, everybody <laughs> looks the same to you. you. You would find it hard for me to tell who it was, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. I said, she had on a muumuu, and in 19, this was 1958 or so, you wouldn't know a muumuu. And besides, the muumuu was pretty filled, so that told me she was pregnant. <laughs> and besides that, um, I could tell they were Japanese. Mm. And he said, well, I find that really hard to believe. But um, anyway, we got to be very good friends. You were the woman that you passed on the street? Yes. Wow. And this was in, in, in Georgia. We got to be very good friends. and. We ended up having lots of picnic suppers together and, and spending weekends together. And so we were both pregnant and eventually we both had our babies and my mother came down from New York to see her first grandchild. Mm. And Barbara came over to pay her respects to meet my mother. And my mother said to her, what is your maiden name? Because Barbara introduced herself and said she was from Honolulu. And I thought, oh, mommy, you know, the Japanese are very preoccupied with where you're from and what your maiden name is, your family name, and where your family is from and all that. And so I thought, oh. So when my mother asked her what her maiden name was, I thought, oh, please. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Barbara told her what her maiden name was, and my mother looked at her and said, you're not old Seagar's daughter. And Barbara started to cry. She said, I haven't heard my daddy called that since he died. My father and her father had gone to Tokyo High, to McKinley High School together in Honolulu a zillion years ago. Now, can you, I mean, talk about small world, but if, Georgia didn't have that law, and if it wasn't, if it was not against the law to have interracial marriage and people of color living, and, and if they didn't live in the same housing development that we did, we would never have met. So in a way, there was something that, that the, the segregation there was something good about it, mm. but um, it, it was really, so when my father came down to see his first grandchild, he met Barbara, he couldn't believe meeting her, and it was really very, very interesting. Now, you were able to identify that this was another woman of Japanese ancestry um, in a completely different state and, you know, city, um, and even on this platform for women of color, um, there is oftentimes a, the question of, well, what constitutes a, you know, a woman of color and who's to, you know, be included in that? And I remember we were at a, um, we ended up being at the same place for uh, Black Philanthropy Month at Ford Foundation, and you got up and you shared that when we're speaking about women of color to make sure that we're also being inclusive of Asian women, Native women, um, what, what would you suggest uh, for, I guess, the, the younger generation to hear more and to engage in stories of our elders, but then also to bridge that divide across the, the community? Well, I, I think it's important for people to just say, where are you from? What, what is your ancestry? What, what is your, where did you grow up? Um, I, I think 
there are very few people who could believe when I went to a Smith Women of Color meeting several years ago. I was there too. When <laughs> women could not believe that when I graduated in 1956, I was the only American-born woman of color in my class of 1956. People thought, no, come on. There were, there had to be black women. There had to be Hispanic. There, there must have been other Asian. I said, nope, mm -hmm. I was the only one. Mm -hmm. And that was, it's a very hard thing to, for people to believe how recent it is for people to um, believe that in my class there was Bansi, who was from India, and there was Akshay, who was from Korea, and so there were two Asian-born women, plus myself, born in the U.S., and that was it. So um, diversity is really quite recent, and it's certainly still not as large mm -hmm. percentage as, as really should be, mm -hmm. both where we live and where we go to school, mm -hmm. where we work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you still being in the, in the community that you grew up in, um, and having seen shifts in, in the neighborhood, like how have you been able to maintain a um, ties to making sure that policies and uh, processes are reflective of the community residents? Well, you know, I think one of the things that was makes it very hard is that, for example, a lot of people don't really understand that because of World War II and because the Japanese of Japanese ancestry were put into camps and were really um, incarcerated and became very um, say shy or or not didn't feel comfortable speaking up because of what happened during World War II and so that there are not so many Japanese Americans there are more from them from the state of Hawaii because Hawaii would have collapsed if all of the Japanese were incarcerated. So many were not, many stayed in their jobs and, and were not put into the camps the way the people on the mainland, and especially the West Coast were. And so there are more people from Hawaii who are involved in politics, who are, in, who are teachers, who are working in, in various jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, in various prof professions, not as many as there were on the mainland. Mm. And so um, for the East Coast, there were not so many that came to New York, for example. Our mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, told the War Relocation Authority don't send any of those Japs to New York. We don't want them in New York City. They're not welcome. So there were not so many Japanese people of Japanese ancestry who moved to New York who relocated here after World War II. There are many more in Long Island, in Westchester, in Connecticut, Massachusetts, other places. There aren't so many in New York City. And that's thanks to this Mayor LaGuardia. And um, so my family and there were other families that were allowed to stay here because my father was born in Hawaii. He was a citizen. And he also, when he was in college, he was in the ROTC. He was in the Army Reserve. And he had a 
military record. And um, so even though my mother was under house arrest, we stayed out of camp. And there were other people, there were some doctors. There was a doctor who was at Mount Sinai, and he was very needed, and he was put into Ellis Island. But then the next day, Mount Sinai called the U.S. and said, hey, you've got to let him out. We need him. He's very needed at our hospital. He's our—he was the man who could— tell the diagnosis of what somebody had in, in the hospital, if somebody had a serious disease, and he could tell what it was. And so the hospital depended upon him to diagnose what was wrong with somebody. So we had some people in New York, but there were very few people who uh, spoke up right away. And so... Um, you decided to be that one, just be me. Well, uh, in a way, I had no choice because I very often saw something or was a part of a situation where people were not being treated fairly. and. You know, ringing in the back of my head was what our parents told my sister and me. Do something with yourselves. You be, be, need to appreciate the fact that you were not in a camp. You were not, you did not, you, you, you had an opportunity to, to be a part of things. And so... Things that, that I was an education major, and being an education major, I was able to see when I looked at the school that our children was, were scheduled to go to, I saw it was very overcrowded. We're getting all the ambient noise here in the park today. <laughs> When my sister and I went to the school, it was the lab school of Teachers College. And it was built by the Rockefeller family, and so it had every possible... Um, there was a swimming pool, there was a girls' gym, there was a boys' gym, there was an indoor roof. When it was cold, they flooded the backyard and we were able to skate after school. There was a large playground, so we could play soccer, we could play hockey, we could, you know, we could play baseball. It was a, we had every possible sport, and then there, because it was a school that was the lab school of Teachers College, they needed to have a, a room where every teacher who was teaching every subject could practice teaching. So there was a ceramics room that had a huge kiln and we learned how to make ceramics just as the teachers who were going to teach it learned how to teach us how to and this and and there was a woodworking there was a sewing there was a you know you name it and and there was an ability for the teachers to learn how to teach the subject well, when I went, the building that, when we went, there were 500 of us from kindergarten through senior. Okay. When I went down to look to see what our children would be able to go to, there were 2,100 children in the same building, and they were on two sessions, and all the special rooms had been stripped, and they were just regular classrooms, and there were books and things stored in the swimming pool. It was not a swimming pool. So it, it was not a good school, and I came home and told my husband our children were not going to be able to go to the same school. It was just not good. So I went down to see the local school board and asked them when they were planning to build a new school for, for, for the neighborhood. And uh, 
I, I was yelled at by one of the school board members. And um, so you went down there solo, by yourself? Well, I, I had to find out what was going to, <laughs> where our children were going to go to school. I mean, I, you know, I had to learn about that. And so when I went, um, it was clear that we couldn't go. So when I went to the school board to find out, um, eventually I became appointed to the school board and my job was assigned to find out what we could do about building a new school. I was an education major so I knew how to teach but I didn't know anything about how you get a new school or anything about school administration or anything like that. I, I knew nothing about that, so I had to learn about that. But I eventually did learn. I, I called the various school systems around the United States. Um, Palo Alto, California had a very good school system as part of the university. And, had a very good school system. Long Island had towns that had good schools. But anyway, I, I did find out and eventually learned um, that everybody in the United States said that New York City had schools that were too big. The buildings were too big. We should have smaller buildings. There should The, the children should have a... a um, toilet in every classroom that was more normal than having a whole classroom. Um, classroom at a whole classroom at a time going to the bathroom. But, but that was not normal and that was not good education. That each classroom in a new school should have its own toilet for the, and it should be a younger children's school. And there should be small playgrounds outside of the classroom, not a big playground. And so eventually, um, we, we eventually learned um, what schools around the city could have. And so we were able to get one for our neighborhood. And so um, that was very exciting because it, it became a model for a small mm -hmm. potential for integration, potential for good education, and, um, because New York City has the most segregated schools in, in, in the U.S. probably, where there, there are lots of different children living. As you like reflect on the things that you pushed forth um, and forward, what would you say is your most memorable um, of the policies um, or, or justice? Well, well, you know, I, I, I think what, what you would want for your own children, what you would want for your own family, things that you would believe should be offered to every child should be for every child in the city. It shouldn't matter what color, what class, what income. All those things shouldn't matter. It should be the, the education that's important for a child and the potential for, for the best education. And that's what I think my Smith education major helped me at least get the background for that to advocate for to be able to to be able to say what's good for one child is good for all children and what's good for one kind of child is good for all kinds of children and and that was one of the things which I think was important but but something else that came up was besides being an education major was that 
I lived right across from a, a very beautiful park that had the potential for being very good, and Columbia University decided they wanted to use it for their students for a gymnasium. And it became something that the community said, no, Columbia University, you're not going to use a public New York City park to take over a part of it and put a building in it for your students. And eventually, it became obvious after many meetings that we were going to have to have Columbia take seriously that the community did not want them to build their gymnasium, and they really didn't take it very seriously. And there was a, the final hearing in the city, which was that they would come to a hearing in the city, and their attorney said, well, the real reason that we have to not permit the community to have access to the gymnasium is because we are planning to have our ROTC practice there, and we will be storing the guns in the park. Mm. And as mothers and people in the community, we said, no, Columbia, you're not going to bring guns into a public park and store them in a public park, you're not going to do that. And Columbia didn't believe us. So the only thing we could do was to say, Columbia, look, this is a New York City public park. You want to put your gym in there. And your university is primarily white. Your students are primarily white. They're going to go into the front door from the Morningside Drive. So you're going to have really a Jim Crow gym, is what we called it, because you would have your white students going in the front door. And because we complained, you said, OK, 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 we'll give you a half-court gym and we'll give you a, 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 a diving pool. You can go, you can go, you can go, um, in the back door. So you'd have the white students coming in the front door and the black community and the Hispanic community and the Asian community and if there were any Native Americans coming in the back door. And and you didn't take it seriously. You, you, you thought that was all right. And we said, no, that's not all right. So uh, we, had to, we ended up having to decide we were just going to stop Columbia from having the they had their big trucks. They put up a huge fence around the area, the, the area where they were going to have the gym. And have this bulldozer come in. So we just sat in front of the bulldozer one morning. And the men running the bulldozer said, hey, coach, you've got to move. You've got to get to work. And he said, well, that's why we're here, because we don't want you to go. <laughs> so we ended up... So you put your body on the line. Yes. But one thing that was very interesting was about, oh, maybe five years before the gym was ready to get built, there was a little girl in my daughter's school who was seven years old, little black child, was raped at lunchtime one day. And she came into the school office with blood running down her legs, crying, describing what this man did. And the school principal, instead of hugging her, taking her into the bathroom and washing her legs, told her to sit on the school bench and went into the office, shut the door, and called the Board of Education to find out what her legal liability was. And we said, you know, this was just not appropriate. Because the next morning after this raping, I was standing in front of the school talking with a few parents, not uh, uh, totally oblivious of what had happened there at the school the day before. 
and somebody came along and said to me, I'm going to tell you something, but you have to promise you can't tell who told you. You can know all the details of what happened, but you cannot say who told you. So I said, of course I don't have to tell my source, but tell me, what is it? Mm -hmm. And then he told me about this child being raped, which horrified me and every other parent I told that to. And as we were standing out there talking, a, a car pulled up and a man got out in his plain clothes. And it was Sergeant Sullivan, our community policeman, our, our local precinct. And he said, he couldn't say Suki, he said, Zuki, what are you doing out here? I said, you know perfectly well what I'm doing out here. You, you've got to know that we're talking about what happened. To and then he got into it. He was so angry. He said, you can't believe we could have picked up that guy if that principal had told us, if she had called us right away as soon as the kid came into the office. We could have picked up that guy because her description, the little girl's description, was so good, we could have picked him up in a second. So we um, were very angry about this. But anyway, we decided to have a—we uh, blocked the school door the next morning. And anyway, we then we said, Sergeant Sullivan, you, you're in your plain clothes. Would you walk around the school and see if anybody stops you? because a kid was raped in this building yesterday. See if anybody stops you and find you. So he walked around, he came out, and he said, nobody stopped me. Here, a kid, seven years old, raped yesterday, and nobody asked me what I was doing wandering around the building. So we were very angry, and so anyway, we had a whole community thing. They did a big brochure, and we had a... Well, anyway, here, about seven years later, when we had this demonstration. He came up to me and he said, Zuki, Columbia wants me to arrest you now. And I said, Sergeant Sullivan, you can't arrest us now because we're going to have a press conference at 11 o'clock. <laughs> we want to tell people what Columbia wants to do in this public park. And if you arrest us, nobody will know and whatever. So he said, you want to be arrested by a woman cop, don't you? And, I, you know, my thought was, who cares? You know, what's the... And he said, you want to be arrested by a woman cop, right? And I thought, he's trying to tell me something. And I said, yeah, yeah, we do. So he said, well, I can't... I don't have a woman cop in the precinct. I've got to look all over this goddamn city, and it's probably not going to be till 1130 or so till I can find a woman cop. Now, if we hadn't worked with him a few years before, and if he didn't trust us, and if he didn't know that we were concerned about our community, he wouldn't have—it would have been no big deal. But besides that, he knew that— you know, there was something he could do to help us. So finally, after we had our press conference and we told the Times, and the Times took a picture of us sitting in front of the bulldozer that hit the papers the next day, and the various TV people, the mayor's office, the police commissioner's office, the park commissioner's office, all kinds of people came and saw what was going on because they all came to the press conference mm. and tried to convince us to go away, you know, go home, go home, go home. But we said, no, we can't do that. So they ended up having to arrest us. But eventually, after two years, the judge said we had to go every few months to court. And every month the judge would say, people, you know, go away. He said, Columbia, do you have your case ready? And Columbia said, no, we don't have it ready yet. And the judge said, you know, you have a law school at your disposal. You have lots of judges. You have lots of graduates of your law school. You have lots of graduates of your college. You have people who could help you with your case. 
but you haven't done anything about it, and you've wasted two years of these people's time, two years of my time and the court time, case dismissed, <coughs> which was very exciting. And so we ended up having the case dismissed. We have a beautiful someday go look at our park because we have a beautiful pond. We have the only waterfall that's because where they dynamited and blasted the rock to make the base for the gym. They, we, we asked, couldn't they make a waterfall come over that dynamited? So we have a pond, trees, a white egret that comes in, the ducks come in there. We have a turtles sitting there, frogs. It, it's a, you know, it's it's wonderful for the kids in the area. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I'm I'm really very happy that we have. It was not only <clears throat> protecting public parkland. But it was also saying to a major institution, you can't take over public land to make a segregated gymnasium because it's easy. You could do it on your own land if you... And so they did. They, their gym is now in, their, in the basement of their own, one of their own buildings. They don't need to have it in a public park. They have it on their own campus. What keeps you inspired uh, to just uh, in terms of things that are going on globally, locally, within the community? What keeps you inspired? Well, I think if you grow up as I did with a family that believes that you know, you respect each person regardless of who they are or what they, their background is. And if you have an opportunity to have an education, if you have an opportunity to have friends who have um, various um, opportunities and, and you share things and we're, we're all very happy that we have a wonderful park that has a, now we still have to work at improving the park lands and, but it's still a possibility and you see what happened during the war, what happened to people of different ancestry. You see that if you work at it, you can undo some of the bad things that happen. I have an opportunity, my education major enabled me to learn about education and how, how you can improve education in different neighborhoods. So that's... that's now, you said that you're a tea drinker. What's your favorite tea? Well, I, I grew up having lots of green tea. Okay. Just straight green tea? Do mm -hmm. you add anything to nope. it? Nope. Okay. So you know that we close each segment with a tea affirmation. What would be your affirmation for the listeners to hold on to and inspire them um, I think tea drinking is a is a wonderful shared activity. You can boil water, you can put together either loose tea or tea bags and and spend time waiting for it to steep and develop some flavor and you can enjoy sitting and talking and having a nice cup of, of tea. And it's a year-round thing because you can either have a nice warm cup of tea to warm you up when you come in and do something during the winter or in the summer you can you know make it cold and have something cold and cool to enjoy in the, in the hot so summer. Be, so, so be versatile with your um, your tea 
drinking and um, and what your your processing. What what else would you say to the listeners to motivate them in in the work in the nonprofit space, social justice space? I think that we all want for our own children, for our own families, for our own town, that life is, is enjoyable, is warm, is safe, and that, that we come together and that there's no need for anger and war they're just really life can be warm for everybody and shared life can be nice and it definitely has been great for you Um, and it's been an honor to hear about your journey your story even the history of your parents it's amazing that well, it's, it's wonderful that there are people like you who are interested in, in recording mm-hmm. this so that we can share with each other. Absolutely. Because it, it, it's, it's important that we respect each other and... And take, share more of our stories. Take, take from each other what, what is important. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Siki. Well, thank you for (laughs) for asking me to share in your project. Until we connect again, sip, sis, say la, share, and continue to serve.